This is Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. Life is not about having everything. It's about finding meaning in everything. Hello, my name is Dean Allen and welcome to the very first episode of Frontierland. Over the coming weeks, I'll be getting to know some of the most inspirational people here in the Eastern Cape and beyond. I may sound as if I've just arrived from the UK, but I have lived in South Africa on and off since the mid-1990s, and I now feel part of this fascinating country. In fact, in 2019, I even cheered the Springboks to victory over England in the Rugby World Cup final. The assimilation was complete. I'm an author and motivational speaker whose academic background as a historian has led to a life committed to sharing South African stories of hope, knowledge and inspiration. It's fitting then that we launch Frontierland with a man who has pursued a career preserving and protecting our natural world. Dr Andrew Muir is the CEO of Wilderness Foundation Africa and is widely acclaimed as one of South Africa's most influential conservationists and social entrepreneurs. Since taking over from Dr. Ian Player in 2000, Andrew has now led the foundation into its 50th year of creating sustainable, lasting impacts. When you hear him speak, you'll understand why. Enjoy. Before we talk about your work with the Wilderness Foundation Africa, Andrew, can you tell me a little bit more about the young Andrew Muir? I mean, what inspired you to have this wonderful interest in the environment and the natural world? Um, thanks, Dean. I grew up um, in Cape Town um, and uh, came from a family that was fairly active. Um, we hiked and uh, enjoyed Table Mountain a lot. But also growing up uh, in the southern suburbs of Cape Town, um, you know, we, back in the 70s, you know, late 60s, early 70s, um, as a young white South African, we obviously were very sheltered and largely oblivious to what was going on around us. Our natural world was all around us. You grew up in the shadow of Table Mountain every day. Um, but I also um, um, had a very bad stutter, uh, which I still have, but not, I think, anywhere to the degree else I wouldn't be talking like I am now. Um, and and that, as a young, you know, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, um, weighs heavily. Um, that kind of disability is one of those disabilities that aren't really, um, certainly back then, dealt with well. Speech therapy, as we, we know it now, was still relatively in its infancy. And I say that because I found great solace in nature. Naturally, I was drawn to the wild. Um, and and as I enjoyed hiking and walking Table Mountain with friends and on my own at times, um, I developed a great, um, a great connection with the natural world and also a sensitivity. I think if you have a impediment like a speech, you you do develop other um, parts of your senses become more alert um, um, and you become quite intuitive, I think you can, uh, and also um, sensitive to what's around you both in the natural world and in your society as a whole. And so somewhere along the way, I 
I felt that um, I could be um, a voice for the voiceless. And I, I understood that instinctively what that meant because I was teased um, uh, as one is as a youngster with, with a bad stutter. I was a good athlete at school. That helped me a lot. Um, but, but, and I developed a confidence. I had a very supportive family. But I did feel that, that perhaps I could be a voice for those who, whose voices were not heard. And, um, and as I grew up and as I developed and as I did more in the natural world, then nature became that partly nature and those disenfranchised as as I got a, a lot older I felt I could be a voice for the voices both in the human world and in the natural world so that's um that's that's part of my uh upbringing and my and my youth that's quite an inspirational story. I mean, so you grew up in the Western Cape, and we all know the beauty of Table Mountain, the beaches, the coastline. Um, but so when did you arrive in the Eastern Cape, and why did this area become so special to you? So um, I arrived here in in 2000. Um, I started uh, working uh, in conservation in uh, 1987, um, and um, I uh, met uh, Ian Player back then and 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 we immediately uh, began to work together i was obviously very in awe of him and what he had achieved in conservation um and uh, by 2000 i was running the wilderness leadership school which was a very uh, globally known um, outdoor education um, uh, um, organization very experientially based and if i may uh, tr- um, providing trans formative experiences in nature on foot with the big five um and that was really my 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 the the beginnings of my conservation career ian had started an organization as well called the wilderness foundation which dealt more in the advocacy uh lobbying area uh, of conservation and my yearning to be a voice um i was very attracted to the advocacy side um of 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 conservation which is uh which is um that's 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 also a very challenging side of conservation because uh, by its very nature you're often in conflict um and you you um you need to you need to be strongly based to deal with all that comes at you i couldn't have had a better mentor than someone like ian also this wonderful um, social activist that I'd done a lot of work for in the in the late eighties and early nineties, Mampila Rampela was was another uh, big um, inspiration, um, and also a, a natural and wonderful advocate for people and for social issues. So Ian influenced me on the on the natural wildlife side. Mampila influenced me on the on the social development side and we had this um, global event that we hold every four years called the World Worldness Congress <clears throat> and we decided to hold it uh, in South Africa in 2001 um, and we chose Port Elizabeth and the reason we chose Port Elizabeth was primary because this really in terms of conservation was the last sort of 
province to really begin a natural re, re, rewilding process. Two of the most important protected areas um, in the country were here, being the Bavionskloof and Addo. Both at that time had challenges and both were on the brink of uh, either uh, um, remaining small or becoming um, very extensive and and enlarging to a point that from a biodiversity and conservation point of view would become of global importance. I wanted to be part of that and and I saw the Congress, um, my uh, colleagues and I, as a launching pad and as an opportunity to put conservation on the map in the Eastern Cape, um, which we did. Um, We had uh, over um, 90 countries attend here, over 1,800 delegates. Um, It took me two years to organize the event. We had to deal with 9-11, which was literally a month and a half before a lot of the high-level Politicians from uh, some of the countries in the north were, were unable to come because of 9-11, so we had to sort of learn things like Skype and, and what is now um, sort of virtual and, 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 and hybrid. We, we were sort of playing with that um, in, two, in 2001. Um, I was lucky enough through Adrian Gardner, who was a good friend of Ian players who really gave us a base to operate the Wilderness Foundation uh, from in Shamari. So I was living in Shamari, um, the Game Reserve, while I was organizing this international event. So I kind of had the best of both worlds. And that was my introduction to the Eastern Cape. it's, you've come a long way. Uh, the, Wil- the Wilderness F- um, Foundation Africa is actually celebrating 50 years this year, so it's great that we've got you in to speak to us. Its mantra is, and I looked, at, looked on your website, and I quote, integrating species, spaces, and people to protect and sustain life on Earth. How do you go about achieving that, Andrew? I mean, that's a big, big claim, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed. And, 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 and I think that um, we do it um, in various ways are our main ways is as a project based organization so we're very outcomes focused um and i think in this virtual world that we're in it's it's important to demonstrate the work that you do in a very real way very grounded way um and that you know is back to our roots um um ian a player and his great friend makubo and tombella were were uh, in part of founders uh, of the Wilderness Foundation Africa. Um, we therefore have a have a strong um, community and urban roots, and I think the work of the fund- foundation deals in both um, areas quite actively across southern Africa. Um, we, uh, we, we have a strong focus on people and environmental issues as well as species specific. Uh, Ian and Mukubu came to global prominence um, through the white rhino and saving the, the white rhino from extinction in the, um, in the early 70s. Um, and so that became one of our focuses, but also without wilderness, without that interconnected um, biodiversity ecosystems gone function and you can't get these extensive systems animals migrating and moving naturally so so land 
landscape spaces is important. And then, as I said, the people side. And so that's where you get the people spaces and species. And we try and integrate that in almost every project that we run. Um, Ian founded other foundations at the time. I, uh, in uh, 2012, helped to consolidate all our global organizations into a network, into a coalition. So we are part of a of a global family network founded out of Africa. I think we're one of the few global conservation movements that are founded out of Africa, in fact, out of the Umfalozi. Um, a confluence of the black and the white on Falozi. Um and and that adds to our to our history. We have a very proud history, um, and I think that uh, you know I I often say to people that uh, you know we are either doing something wrong or horribly wrong because we I mean, sorry we're either doing something right or horribly wrong because in our entire history of fifty years we've had two. The chief executive officers, Ian Player and myself. So, <laughs> I think it's a good thing because it gives you you continuity and and it also um, shows um, a dedication to to the cause um, of conservation that we are involved in. As you know, I'm involved in in this study of uh, the history of wildlife tourism in the Eastern Cape. So, you were one of the first per- people that I actually spoke to, and you've given me great guidance during that study, um, which is every day. It's an absolute education for myself, and it's an absolute privilege to do. But somebody I interviewed, and I won't name them. Um, I remember Lee left me with this with this statement, and I'll just like you to comment. He said that conservation in the wrong hands is worse than no conservation at all. Would you agree with that? And what constitutes a successful and effective conservation program in your in your mind? Look, I think um, I think there there is a large element of truth in that because, um, like any industry, and I think we need to see conservation as a a sector and an industry, and it's multi-faceted, and it's actually a big industry um, uh, uh, in all its different guises and elements. Um, and so you, you know, you get um, different characters coming into conservation from different angles. You've got your formal state agencies that have a very particular role to play. They obviously also have to address the socio-economic challenges of the time. You've got your well-established NGOs and those of us that are well-established, we have history and that history is both good and positive, uh, both both good and, and, and of course comes from a time of apartheid and we need to own up to that and recognize that and continually evolve and address uh, those issues as they affect conservation, um, particularly in Africa. Uh, And then you have a lot of um, issue-based individuals and organizations that really come together around one specific issue. You know, uh, I lost count, but a few years ago when we looked into this in detail, um, there were about um, 40-odd thousand registered um, not-for-profit organizations that had a conservation, um, something to do with conservation, anything from trying to conserve a butterfly or, 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 or do a lot more than that over space or science or scale, um, and um, from corporate-based groups to, um, um, to businesses that had a not 
for-profit arm to full-blown um, uh, charities uh, for charities that were linked to the business of conservation, so private game reserves that obviously have a strong commercial model. A lot of them have have charities now too. So you can hear by me just saying that, that it's a very, very wide and varied. Um, um, and if, if, like with anything, particularly around sustainability, if, um, if there isn't a balance, um, and in, th- in this instance, if conservation isn't at the core, then is it conservation? Um, if, if, if it's driven only by commerce, is it conservation? If it's driven with a commercial model, which is important, but has a very strong conservation values that, that, that are entrenched, is that conservation? And I think it is. And, and I think that is what that saying means, that, you know, in the process of doing good, you can also do a lot of damage if you um, greenwash um, and give people the wrong impressions. There was, you know, these stories that are well-known and have been well-documented when the rhino crisis started. You know, there, there were many times you could walk into a mall and buy a... Um, a, a um, something for the rhino armband or whatever it is. Um, and many instances when we audited those, there was no trace where that money went to. Now, clearly that's not the conservation. Um, so I think, uh, like with most industries, a lot of people ride on bandwagons, and conservation is very emotive, um, and, 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 and it's a cause that resonates with a lot of people. And I think that can also be um, abused. And I take the business of conservation very seriously. And I think it's got to uh, have a root core. And that core has to be what I call real conservation, which is conservation which is reviewed, which is based off, um, off science, but also has an element of emotive attached because the natural world um, is a very central place to be in um, and so you need I think the both um, and so cause is important but rigor and accountability equally important uh, particularly when you're dealing with public money and public funds. A cause that gets a lot of publicity of course is uh, is rhino protection mm. um, you know we, we know that our, our rhinos have been endangered um, and continue to be under threat um, so two of the programs you're currently involved in involved with are the rhino protection initiative which i i'm assuming is one of your higher profile initiatives but you're also involved in perhaps lesser known uh, conservation projects such as that to protect the african penguin mm. which is quite close to our heart here in nelson mandela bay can you tell us a little bit of how these causes kind of support one another and how you prioritize one over the other well i think uh, so so the way that um, i would explain it is that we should see these particular species as charismatic and, and, and at times apex, depending what we're talking about, whether it's lion or, or shark or, or now um, um, rhino, is, is a very charismatic um, species, um, prehistoric, um, uh, um, uh, used to roam uh, two-thirds of the land mass of the earth. Um, and, you know, even in the... Um, um, uh, 
early 1900s, there were over 100,000 black rhino in Africa. So it's it's hard to imagine, but that is what it was back then. Um, and I think that kind of big charismatic species, you know, you you feel that if that species is on the brink of extinction, then what does that say about us? Um, and so for me, it's about all species that make up our biodiversity, and there are 13 million species all in all that make up the life support system on Earth, which is biodiversity. Um, but species like the rhino, you can imagine a polar bear, as charismatic as that is, balancing on a piece of ice. These are indicators. And so they're indicators of the challenges we have at the time. If you like, they're like a temperature gauge. How are we doing? If we can't conserve a rhino, then how do we expect to conserve the invisible? And the, and the um, 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 hundreds of thousands of species, um, particularly in the insect world and others that we don't pay attention to. Um, and that is why I think conserving species like the rhino are important because it, it's an indicator of much more. I often say with this rhino crisis, it's not about the rhino. Um, you know, it's really about all species. When we're on the brink of, of the sixth mass ex, ex, extinction, we've had five in the history um, of the earth and we're on the brink of number six and it's, it's biodiversity. It's the very thing I'm talking about, and it's particularly in invertebrates. I mean, when when you have um, uh, when we're living in a time in our life, in the last ten years, <clears throat> we've had to take the giraffe, which has been a common species across Africa, and we've now had to classify the giraffe as endangered. So when, when your giraffes are becoming endangered because they're running out of habitat, because of the fences, um, because of, um, of the, uh, um, um, the, the wild meat market, because of um, poaching, all these elements coming in, um, it's never one reason why a species declines. There's always a myriad of reasons which often act as a domino, rather like our changing climate. Um, so when the, when that is happening, you've got to know that there's a lot more than the giraffe that is endangered. And, and we see 20% of all species on Earth um, are in danger of becoming extinct in the next 20 to 30 years. And so the question I often ask audiences that I talk to is, imagine you were in a hospital on a life support system um, and a doctor had to come to your, your family and say, look, I'm afraid we've got a, a technical glitch here and we can only give your partner, your husband, your wife, whoever it may be, 80% life support. But don't worry, they'll be fine. But we can only give them 80%. Um, would we accept that? Of course not. But that's what we're doing to our life support system. Biodiversity is our life support. And yet 20% of all species on Earth. And that's why I say it's not about the rhino. And, and it's not about the lion. It's a, it really, they are indicators of a much greater change event. And so this biodiversity 
crisis that we're in, which is conservation, often right now is getting overshadowed by the climate crisis, which is an equally, in fact, even more terrifying prospect. Um, but you have these two issues happening at the same time, interrelated to a degree, because many species don't have the luxury of migrating, of moving. And as the climate warms or cools, they can't go anywhere, so they die off. Um, and so the, 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 so the one definitely, obviously, compounds heavily on the other. So you have this biodiversity crisis, you have this climate crisis, um, and then you have us as, uh, as humans right in the middle of it trying to survive as a species needing more resources. We're already using, from a sustainability point of view, nearly two and a half times what the Earth can actually offer us to survive. So for, we are unsustainable completely. Um, and so th there's a rebalancing in the process of happening, which is playing out with climate. Uh, and, and, and I think we, we, we have woken up. Um, environmentalism is at a level that it's never been at um, before. Um, and um, corporates and global um, um, uh, citizens and, and, and countries are reacting positively because this is a livelihood issue. You know, I think one of the um, challenges we have in conservation is conservation is often seen as an elite, um, uh, and there is an element of that, and that's part of the problem. You pay a lot of money to go to these private reserves, so it's, there is a perception that conservation is for the elite. But in natural fact, the bulk of conservation is about survival for all of us. Um, and, and so these are the messages, and this is the work that we as Wilderness Foundation Africa try and do. And it's why the rhino and the African penguin are so important. I mean, the penguin, like the rhino, is an indicator sp species. And what is it indicating? It's saying that there's something horribly wrong in our bay. What's happening there? Well, you probably have a combination, of course, as I said earlier, it's never one thing. You have the ocean temperatures are rising. There are less fish around. Why? Well, there's probably overfishing happening and, and the temperatures are affecting the fish. Um, the penguins, therefore, don't have the food source that they need and they're competing for it. Uh, the, um, this um, uh, explosion of anchorage and bunkering uh, and the noise um, um, is affecting the penguins. They tend to home and base themselves in one um, one island, and and so they would rather starve on starve than 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 move elsewhere. It's 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 how they are, and so that is what's happening. All those um, factors are coming together and causing our penguins um, to again a species. Um, certainly in the bay, on the brink of extinction, but an indicator of much more than the penguin. And this is what we as a society need to understand. It's not about the penguin going extinct. It's about everything else um, that's attached and associated. And we all connected. We all can. This is one earth, you know. The, there's a connection. Yeah, we're certainly part of that system, and mm. often, well, more than often than not, we are the we are the issue. Um, 
there's an argument that we that we're overpopulated. There's too many humans on this on this planet. But uh, are you at the belief? And I hope you'll have a positive answer here that we haven't gone too far. We can make a difference, and it's all about changing opinion. Even if you do reach somebody, albeit through the story of the rhino or the African penguin, you please tell me that you have uh, optimism going forward. I, I do have optimism because I think we have a a tremendous resilience to adapt. We can adapt probably a lot, if we put our minds to it, a lot easier than than most other species can. Um, We also have technology on our side. Technology uh, can um, um, definitely um, mitigate a lot of the environmental and conservation challenges that we have at this time. We just need to apply it properly and and we need to co- coordinate the application we need to work together I, I, I fear that often uh, as in many sectors we operate in isolation and we've got to put that to one side see the bigger picture and work together to try and solve these very complex issues which we have the ability to solve if we put our mind to it I think COVID-19 um, was a a wake-up call to us, and, and 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 also there was a lot of positives from a conservation perspective that came out of that. I mean, when we left areas alone, they bounced back, right? When we stopped putting pressure um, on um, international travel, the carbon levels dropped. Um, uh, when when we um, when we allowed when we left nature alone, it started to recover. So. So there's a lot there, and I think we must also realize that a coronavirus is a uh, zoonosis. It's it's about um, a spillover from the natural world to the human world. So it is actually an environmental event of one kind, and it is an indicator of the human-wildlife challenge that we have right now, or human-nature challenge. And on the converse side of that, um, I think that the the uh, natural world momentarily was in a healthier state during COVID than we were uh, as it as it began a recovery and and so I think I think that there are a lot we can learn and apply and 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 there is a as I said earlier I'm seeing uh, much more awareness uh, to environmental issues broadly I mean you, you know you cannot live anywhere on this earth and no longer see that our climate is changing and that the extreme weather events are on the increase and that that is not just a natural phenomenon, that there's a human-made, a human-added element to it. Um, And I think most people and most governments are responding positively to that. A lot of what you do, Andrew, is involved with local communities because it is about knowledge, it is about education. How, is it, how important is it, alongside the protection and the maintenance of, say, an animal population or the environment, that you work with communities? And how do you go about doing that? Well, I, I think it's the most important part of, of uh, our work and, and for some reason which I struggle to understand at times, it's, it's, um, it's often the most neglected part of conservation work as a sector Um, we can't do conservation without local knowledge and without communities that live and work around those environments being part of 
the solution more so um you know uh, um particularly in in south africa um the truth is that uh, cons- the conservation as a sector particularly the private conservation sector is largely untransformed and that's a fact um and i mean i sat on a panel for two years recently on behalf of um our ministry of environment and we you know we 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 really dived into these issues in depth and um it's it's probably uh, one of the most untransformed industries in our country which is absurd because it's it's an industry that depends solely on community for job creation for jobs um to support the conservation most of our conservations on uh, areas particularly our great protected areas aren't in urban environments they're in rural environments and so we should be talking about community beneficiation but we also should be talking about the community ownership and we should be talking about custodianship and partnership going forward and we've tried and will continue to drive those agendas very hard as other organizations are um, are doing and and try and ensure that in our policy frameworks and ensure that in our thinking of building this green economy that it really is an opportunity for a new way of seeing um community and environment together um and and in some instances that's beginning to happen and i think uh with the opportunities around rewilding and restoration there are huge opportunities there also um can we go back to someone you mentioned earlier you you mentioned you were inspired by the work of a, a gentleman called dr ian player and i know the likes of adrian gardner for example um were inspired by what he stood for the kind of man he was. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about him and why he was so important in this journey of conservation in Southern Africa in particular? Look, I um, was lucky enough to understudy Ian um, over a long period of time and um, ultimately I took over all, um, most of the foundations that he founded. So, um, you know, next to his family, I, I, I think I was probably one of the closest people to Ian over a 30-year or about a 28-year period. Um, What was extraordinary about Ian is that he was incredibly human and he he reflected on himself um, well. He he, um, took uh, psychology and self-reflection very seriously and applied his life to that over and above his conservation work. And I think there's a great lesson in that. You know, as Ian became globally a recognized figure in conservation, he, re- he remained humble um, and he remained grounded to, what, to his core, core values. Um, and uh, that's incredibly admirable. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I was often awe how... Ian could walk into a room and he literally, um, you know, he could talk to anyone. And, and when he engaged you and when he talked to uh, to you, he genuinely listened. Um, and, 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 and the impact that that had, I mean, I told this wonderful story that when Ian died, he, he had a private funeral that um, we were asked to, to organize on um, 
his family's behalf, and then he had a a, a big memorial service. <clears throat> and the kind of agreement was that the private funeral would only be for very close friends. Hundreds of people turned out for the private funeral because people felt close to him, just with how he was. Um, and and uh, and I I see that as a great attribute. Um, Ian was also very focused. Um, and, uh, you know, he loved to tell the story of David and Goliath, you know, and what um, what David said when Goliath held it, um, uh, moved, um, came over the hill, he said, boy, he's just so big I can't miss, you know. Um, and, and that was his attitude to everything that he did, is you had to be on the plane, the field, um, and, and if you believed and you could galvanize people behind you, um, anything was possible. He really believed in the power of the individual to that higher ideal of conservation. And he practiced it, and, and, and I think he lived by that. No, it's a, it's a, and and you, you continued his wonderful work, of course, with what you're doing with the Wilderness Foundation. Now, one of the things I've come up, um, come up um, not against, but something I'm very interested in is this concept of rewilding. It's mm. a term that's been banded around. It's almost like a very in vogue term at the moment. Like Ian Player, I believe your vision is to open up large parts of the Eastern Cape as a fence-free region to encourage the natural movement and migration of animals. Is that part of this rewilding movement, and why is that so important to you? Well, well, that's quite a loaded question because I wish that was part of the rewilding movement i think the rewilding movement are still trying to to work out what they are but but i think it's part of conservation for sure so we um you know we uh the uh, from a scientific base extensive systems um where animals are free to roam and move across vast um uh, um land scapes is the best kind of conservation but it's also best for the land and from a biodiversity point of view and now from climate change and climate mitigation we need to allow species as i said earlier to naturally migrate as things get hot or cool in order for them to survive and then of course from a carbon capture point of view the more wild the land is obviously the more carbon it captures so there are all sorts of reasons while it's good and from a livelihood point of view the bigger a system is the more people it can support the more communities can be involved so extensive is the way to go and with the advent of the fence particularly in southern africa and south africa the fence really constricted extensive and it became intensive and what intensive means in, in layman's terms is that you, you, the more closed a system is, the more you have to manage it, right? The more open a system is, the less you have to manage it. So the larger ADO becomes, in some ways, the easier it is to manage the ecology of ADO. The smaller an area is, the more you have to manage, the more you have to cull, the more you have to keep your numbers in check, watch, carrying capacity, water resources, all of those things. So extensive is logical, right? Um, and so rewilding is really just 
coming along as a vogue word because of climate change, because of the need to restore uh, what was there in 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 order um, again driven partly by business to get that so-called carbon credit uh, in one way or another. But we've been rewilding uh, ever since the word conservation came into the fore because that is what conservation is. It is preservation. It is trying to keep what you have in as natural state as you can. Um, and so rewilding has different meanings because if, if you now plant a um, a field of of speckboom, is that rewilding or is that a monoculture? Is that is that what is that? Um, yes, there's a carbon benefit there. But if you mix that field of speckboom with woody species and and that used to occur there naturally, what are you doing then? So you're now allowing that habitat to ultimately come back. You encouraging far more biodiversity and more birds and species. So so we still need to develop the protocol for what rewilding really is. Um, uh, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm a bit nervous with this word because it is very vogue um, and we still need to define it and we still need to understand it. And may I ask, are we any closer to a fence-free Eastern Cape or certainly large areas of the province? Yeah, I think, you know, the wonderful thing about the Eastern Cape and one of the reasons why um, the Wilderness Foundation Africa has its head office here um, and and we base some of our projects here because it really is one of the few provinces that hold this great potential for extensive Systems. I mean, we have within the boundaries of the province, you've got part of the Tisikama National Park, uh, you've got the Bavians Kloof, which is well over 350,000 hectares now. Um, the Tisikamas <clears throat> on the Eastern Cape side is probably about 250 odd, including uh, parts of state forests. And then you've got Ada Elephant Park, which is um, close to 300,000 hectares. And then you've got the Great Fish River. System which is over sixty thousand hectares, and then you've got about twenty big five game reserves that have have all found their way and developed over the last thirty years on uh, you know about, um, and they if you add them all up, you you well over one hundred and fifty thousand hectares. So put that all together, <clears throat> and and the connectiveness the, the the opportunity to connect them, um, if you look on maps, is 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 all there because there's a lot of game farms, and um, and um, in between uh, game breeding and game hunting, there's a lot of community land. So if you if you if you if you look at it from a like for like, there's a huge opportunity to through various ways join these areas up and indeed take fences down and that's begun to happen um, with some state parks um, and also private industries now or, or, or the private reserves rather are really looking at ways they realize that the future is extensive systems because that's also what the informed eco-based tourists want they also want ex extensive they don't want to feel like they're in a big zoo um, 
And the Eastern Cape is so well placed because it's malaria free. Um, it has this. Um, it has six of our eight biomes vibrant in it. Um, this is the meeting zone of many of those biomes. You get everything from forest to the Karoo, um, and and all those experiences in between. So it's a ver- it's a very biodiverse province. It is our most biodiverse province um, in the country. Uh, it's one of the most biodiverse regions of the world. And biodiversity is the core to conservation and is the core to eco-based and nature-based experiences. So put that all together, and I believe that with the right political will and leadership, with communities central um, as 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 part and parcel of the ownership structures of 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 what we're talking about with private and industry involved and with state involved we could have an extensive system of one kind or another literally from the mouth of the storms river which is the tisikama all the way to the mouth of the fish and everything um, you know you could have an arc of of what I would call a protected environment, which um, which is a connected area along riverways, and then you have these large protected areas in 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 between, which could rival anything in the world, um, and could open up massive opportunities for um, our country as a whole, but particularly for this uh, th- this region, because we are living in a marginal landscape. Um, uh, uh, we are a water, and always have been, by the way, um, a water-scarce province. And wildlife, proper introduced, managed wildlife across extensive systems is a very natural way to deal with that landscape if we can make the economics work. And I think these private reserves have shown us that you can um, and now we need to apply it in a much broader way. And we really could become a mecca for uh, discrete ecotourism experiences globally. You've inspired me again, as you've done with uh, during our various conversations. And um, I'm so glad that you were inspired during those walks along Table Mountain uh, to, to, to follow this path in your life. There should be more Andrew Muir's around. For just somebody, just to finish now, for somebody listening who wants to do more, in this area, how would you suggest that they get involved and help? I think, uh, as I said earlier, the power of the individual um, is the critical. I think people can help and get involved in so many different ways. They mustn't feel overwhelmed by the environment or by conservation because it's part and parcel of our lives. And we should we should we should know that whether we are a presenter on radio or whether we um, are uh, uh, you know whether we in a business um, there are things that we can do every day to support the environment as a whole as an organization we obviously rely on on the public for support as so do so many other NGOs and without that without keeping conservation I'll end with this without keeping as long as we keep conservation in the public domain we will win we will persevere and we will come through And so we need the public to do that. Thank you very much. That was Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen.
For more podcasts, visit algoafm.co.za. I hope you found this episode both entertaining and inspirational. Please do download, share and subscribe to the podcast so that we can highlight the positive stories coming out of our nation. South Africa is indeed a special place with special people. You can find out more about me at my website, deanallen.co.za. Please do get in touch. So until next time, please be kind to yourself and others. Goodbye.